We're going to start the way we always start. Uh, we're going to talk to our young ones first, kids. I want you all to know what the passage is going to be about and then what the sermon is going to be about. So uh, let me tell you a little story that's going to help us understand what Paul is going to say to us today. Uh, I, uh, okay, I don't play basketball anymore. Uh, I've, I've retired. Um, uh, but I was asked to play in my very last game of basketball that I ever played. I was asked to play in an all-star game. I so asked to play in an all-star game, and no joke, I played, I was amazing. I was awesome. Is the, is the be- I, I ended on, like, the best game of my life, just as, like, one, one instance. No joke. I really, I, I used to be able to do this. I got this pass from, from someone on my team. I went up, I grabbed it, I did a 180 slam dunk. I'm, I'm not joking. I thought it was so cool. So did everyone else there. Oh, everyone there, the other team, my teammates, the crowd, they do one of these, ah! you know, they, everybody goes nuts. Y'all don't, y'all don't look impressed. I'm not kidding. Like this was, I'm not lying. And this is an all-star game. I'm playing with all-stars. But the all-stars are 12 years old. <laughs> yes, that, yeah, the All-Stars are like 12 years old. This is Jax, like three years ago. But I really did. I took it to him. Uh, it was awesome. Uh, and uh, it was on an eight-foot goal, too. Um, okay, so uh, here's the thing, though. Like, you laugh because that standard is really, like, that's a terrible standard. Like, for me to talk about how awesome I am against kids, uh, I wasn't playing against high schoolers, college kids, or even... Okay, what's like, what is the standard for basketball? Who? Who is the standard for basketball? Kids. Go ahead. Shout it out. Who's the standard? Your standard. LeBron James. Thank you. Yeah, who else? Michael Jordan. There's that debate. LeBron, Michael, you know, yes... That's not who I was playing against, but that's the standard of excellence in basketball. Uh, okay, and, and actually, and here's the really funny thing. Uh, I wasn't the best player on that court. It was one of the moms who played college basketball. She was like unbelievable. She was awesome. Um, okay, but y'all, you can look at it and be like, you're ridiculous. Uh, and, and yes, but this is, kids, this is what we do. We do this every day. We have these standards of, oh, I'm really, really good. Uh, I, I live up to what I think is really good, so I think I'm really good. God must think I'm really good. But let me ask you this, kids. What is God's standard for you? Anybody can just join in. What is God's standard for you? This is okay. This is where we can try. We can be wrong together. This loves us the way that we are. Is that true? Kids, is that true? We can, again, venture a guess. Yes, no, is that true? <laughs> everyone got everyone a little. You're not in school. Not going to fail. How about this? God expects us to be the best that we can. That's what God wants for me, just to be the best that I can be. Is that true? Thank we. There we go. Now we're tracking. That's not true, and you know what else isn't true? It's not that God does not expect anything of us. That's not true either. God has one standard. What is it? It is it's perfection. Be perfect. Is anyone here perfect? 
no. And you like, like kids, we all need to join in that of like, no, I'm not perfect. Okay. Does that mean we're in big trouble? Oh, yes. It's good. See, we can just throw stuff out. Yes, let's work through this. No, if God's standard is perfection and we're not perfect, that means we are in big, big trouble. What can we do if we're not perfect? What is the only thing we can do? According to the Bible, according to the gospel, the only thing we can do is what? Believe in God and believe in His Son. Believe in the one He sent to be perfect for us. This is, this is everything right here, kids. Jesus was perfect for us. He lived perfectly. And then he did the amazing thing of taking the punishment for our terrible, terrible, messed up lives. Taking the punishment for us for not being perfect. Last question, kids. And this is really, really important. I want you to think about people that you have a problem with. No answering here. Uh, think of someone you don't like. Okay? <laughs> no pointing either. Uh, hey, think of someone you don't like, okay? Are you better than them? This is good. This is so good. We're working this out together. And the answer is, what the gospel tells us is, no. We are not better than other people. Even you being a Christian and you believing in Jesus does not make you better than someone else. And what the gospel tells us is, we need the gospel. We need Jesus. And the people we don't like, they need him too. And if we know Jesus' love for us, it really does help us to love those who maybe we don't like so much. To love those who don't like us. To love those who don't love us. To look at them and say, you know what? You need the gospel too. Just as much as I need it. And I need it just as much as you need it. This is what Paul is going to tell us today. Uh, as we're moving into Romans chapter 2. Everyone, we've just started our series in the book of Romans this spring. And Paul, we said this last time, he doesn't waste any time getting into the really, really hard stuff. Uh, and, and we started talking about that really hard stuff last Sunday, the wrath of God. And we're going to be talking about it again this Sunday. And it's a hard one. Uh, and many of us have been the subject of abuse, mistreatment by self-righteous legalists who have used God's wrath to shame other people, maybe shame you. Uh, others have really never heard biblical teaching on God's wrath because they, they grew up in a, in, a, in a church or a place where you were only ever, all you ever heard was that God is love and he accepts all peoples just as they are. Uh, it's hard too because you hear it and you start fearing for the ones that you really love who don't know Jesus. Okay, yes, all of that is hard. And there's wondrous, awesome hope here for all of us. Uh, the passage this morning, please stand for the reading of God's Word. We're going to start in, in verse 16 of chapter 1 because this will truly finish chapter 2. Also remember that part that we confessed, the confession of sin uh, from Romans 3. For I am not ashamed of the gospel, for it is the power of God for salvation to everyone who believes, to the Jew first and also to the Greek. Therefore you have no excuse, O man. Every one of you who judges... For in passing judgment on another, you condemn yourself because you, the judge, practice the very same things. We know that the judgment of God rightly falls on those who practice such things. Do you suppose, O oh man, you who judge those who practice such things and yet do them yourself, that you will escape the judgment of God? 
Or or do you presume on the riches of his kindness and forbearance and patience, not knowing that God's kindness is meant to lead you to repentance? But because of your hard and impenitent heart, you're storing up wrath for yourself on the day of wrath when God's righteous judgment will be revealed. He will render to each one according to his works. To those who by patience and well-doing seek for glory and honor and immortality, he will give eternal life. But for those who are self-seeking and do not obey the truth, but obey unrighteousness, there will be wrath and fury. There will be tribulation and distress for every human being who does evil. The Jew first, and also the Greek. But glory and honor and peace for everyone who does good. The Jew first, and also the Greek. For God shows no partiality. For all who have sinned without the law will also perish without the law. And all who have sinned under the law will be judged by the law. For it is not the hearers of the law who are righteous before God, but the doers of the law who will be justified. For when Gentiles who do not have the law by nature do what the law requires, they are a law to themselves, even though they do not have the law. They show that the work of the law is written on their hearts, while their conscience also bears witness, and their conflicting thoughts accuse or even excuse them on that day when, according to my gospel, God judges the secrets of men by Christ Jesus, the word of the Lord. Please be seated. Um, Hey, last Sunday, like we said, it was a a difficult passage. Uh, It's right at the beginning of Romans, Romans 1, where Paul says that all unbelievers everywhere who have ever lived and have rejected God by, by suppressing the truth about God, they've all done that, and they've all done it in order to worship and serve creation instead of the Creator. All unbelieving mankind uh, has rejected God to worship themselves, and God's response to this idolatry is His wrath. It's His wrath in this life and His wrath forever. And now, in Romans 2, Paul turns his attention away from the Gentiles to another group of people who he doesn't seem to name, but he names. Uh, who he's talking about here, it, 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 it actually is crystal clear. Uh, and he continues to talk about this dynamic later in the letter as he goes on. But Paul is addressing the Jews. And he addresses, he's addressing the people who have the law of God. If a Jew in Rome had heard Paul's opening chapter in this letter, if they had heard what Paul said about Gentiles being under God's wrath, they would have said, yes, amen. On that we agree, Paul. But they would not like what Paul says here in chapter 2, because here Paul says, okay, and the Jews too. The Jews are also under God's wrath, just like Gentiles, because they are guilty of the same thing. As in, like, if you, if you think telling unbelievers that they are under God's wrath, if you think that's shocking, it was really no less shocking to tell the people who claim to be God's people that they too are under God's wrath. So, you know, here it is. Explain yourself, Paul. This is, this is one of those harder passages, uh, and it's not just because of what Paul says about the Jews, but because of what it sounds like Paul is saying to the church. Because it sounds like Paul is saying you are saved by works. You are saved by doing good. You, can, you read verses 6 and 7 that say, God will render to each one according to his works. 
to those who by patience and well-doing seek for glory and honor and immortality, he will give eternal life. And then verse 13, for it is not the hearers of the law who are righteous before God, but it's the doer traditional interpretations of what Paul means here. So, so one major interpretation. Some people will read this and say that Paul is talking about works, our good works, as evidence of genuine faith. Like your works evidence your faith. God will save the Christian who evidences their faith by choosing God, doing good, persevering in their faith all their life. So this, interpreta- this interpretation says that here, beginning of Romans 2, it's looking at Christians who obey the law, they do good, that's who God is going to vindicate and justify on Judgment Day. And, and, and it's not saying that this interpretation, it's not that you're saved by works. It's not, no. It's not that you're saved by works, but that your good works are the evidence of your genuine faith. Okay, that teaching, that is true. That is biblical. Jesus teaches that stuff. That our good works They justify the truthfulness of our faith, the validity of our faith. Uh, James teaches that, that our good works validate the authenticity of our faith. John John the Apostle teaches this. Paul teaches this too. But not here. That's not, yes, that's true, but that's not what Paul's talking about here. Contextually, that does not fit with what Paul has just been talking about. The other traditional interpretation is that Paul is transitioning from that hard truth that Gentiles are under God's wrath, even though they don't have the law, to this, to say that the Jews are also under God's wrath, even though they do have the law, because they too reject God. So what Paul's talking about here, in Romans 2, he's talking about the Mosaic Law. He, it, it, it's the, the Jews had the law. They had the Mosaic Law. They had the Ten Commandments uh, on Mount Sinai stuff. Uh, they had the Old Testament prophets and, and the writings. And the Mosaic Law says that if you're going to be just law completely, only those who do the law all their life, verse 7, who by pay eternal life, Therefore, Paul says, Jews are as guilty as Gentiles because they do not obey the law perfectly. Right here, Paul is not explaining the gospel. He's explaining the law. And, and, and we need to say this and be really clear, and Paul is not being anti-Semitic. Paul is a Semite. He is a Jew, and he knows all of these arguments because they used to be his arguments. And the irony, the irony that Paul points up is, you know, the Jews are missing the point of the law itself. The Israelites and the Jews of the day, they think they have God's law and that they're, they're good and they're moral enough to escape God's wrath, unlike the Gentiles who don't have the law and therefore can't be good enough. But the whole point of the law was to expose Israel's failure to keep the law in their need of God's grace and mercy to escape His wrath. All their, all their failures in the Old Testament to keep the law as a nation, all the trouble they got in with God over and over, Assyria, Babylon, 70 years of captivity, just to name a few, that was supposed to expose their inability to earn God's heavenly reward on the basis of their works. 
But the Jews are saying, yeah, yeah, but God always got over his anger. We're still as a nation, we're still a nation after a thousand years of persecution, and as far as eternal life, we'll be okay. Like we are God's chosen people. We're safe because we're Jews. Paul says that is a huge problem of presumption. Uh, something like this, on May 9th, uh, 1864, we, we did a lot of uh, Civil War stuff. We, we moved to Boston as a family. When I was a kid, as a family, when we were young, and we did a whole bunch of Civil War stuff. Uh, and I was reminded of this awesome story um, uh, this week, that on May 9th, 1864, General John Sedgwick, his Union general, he led his Union troops into the Battle of Spotsylvania Courthouse. They arrive at the battlefield, and the troops start setting up artillery. Uh, and, and all of a sudden, they come under fire. And they're, they're getting fired upon by Confederate soldiers who are 1,000 yards away. That's like 10, you know, 10 football fields away. Uh, and members of, so members of Sedgwick's staff, his troops, they all duck for cover. And General Sedgwick, he, he walks around in the open, and he yells at his men. He says, what? Men dodging this way for single bullets? What will you do when they open fire along the whole line? And his troops, you know, they're, now they're embarrassed, they're ashamed. So they get back to work, but they're still like flinching every time like something whizzes by them. They're, they're, you know, they're flinching at every shot. And Sedgwick is watching them and he yells again, why are you dodging like this? They couldn't hit an elephant at this distance. And the next moment, General Sedgwick is hit under the left eye by a sniper and he's killed tragically. It's very sad, very tragic. That's the danger of presumption. The Jews are making a big presumption about the law, and it is going to cost them everything. They're missing the point of the law, which is their need of God's grace and His mercy because they cannot fulfill the law. Verse 4, Do you presume on the riches of His kindness and forbearance and patience, not knowing that God's kindness, like God's kindness to you as you fail and you fail and you fail, and you fail, and you fail, and you fail. Like, do you not see God's kindness as you keep going into idolatry, and yet God does not wipe you out like the rest of the Gentile nations? Like, that is meant to lead you to repentance. Because you can't do it. You need grace just as bad as the Gentiles. Paul says, you know, the Jews condemn the Gentiles for their idolatrous living, but you're guilty of the same thing. To which the Jews would say, we do not live like the Gentiles, Gentile pagans do. To which Paul would say, yes you do. You sin too. Your life is full of sin. And it's not just what you do, it's also what's in your heart. And this is where we, you really do have to, okay, now, you've got to remember the context here. The letter of Romans is not written. It's not written to unbelieving Gentiles and unbelieving Jews. Like It's not like a copy of this letter is delivered to Caesar and then another copy is del- delivered to the synagogues. It's, not, he, he's, he, it's written to the church. Paul's writing to the church in Rome. And the church in Rome, it is made up of Gentiles and Jews who have become... Uh, they've, these, these Gentiles, these Jews who have become Christians, but now there's a lot of infighting between the two groups, which he's going to continue to unpack in the letter. But, but it's something along the lines of the, the, there, there's, this, uh, there's this 
Christian, I mean, I mean how do I say this? There's this Christian Gentile arrogance against the Jewish Christians. Something along the lines of like, okay, the Jews had their chance with God and y'all blew it and now it's our turn. We're God's people. And there's Jewish arrogance against the Gentile Christians along the lines of, no, 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 we are God's chosen people. We've always been God's chosen people. We always will be God's chosen people and you'll always be a pagan. Okay, this, it, Paul's writing to the church because this is a problem in the church and this same kind of thinking, it's still in the church today. For example, some Roman Catholics would say, as long as I attend Mass and take communion, then it really doesn't matter how I live or exactly what I believe. I'm Roman Catholic and I'm safe with God. And that's an easy straw man because the pro- guess what? Protestants do that too. Protestants say the same kind of thing, including us in the Reformed Church. Well, I'm Reformed. And the Roman Catholics and the Pentecostals and the Baptists and the Methodists, even the Lutherans, they got it wrong. And I'm in the Reformed Church. I'm in the right group. I go to the right church, so I'm safe with God. Or if, you, you, you know, if you've got success, if, if you know, Christian, you're... you're you're doing good and life is good and you're having success after success. It's this idea that is very easy to slip in that God is pleased with me. Look how I am blessed. I must be on his side. I must have God's favor. I must be safe with God. Even if you don't have great success right now in your life, in this season of life, it's easy to slip into this kind of thinking. All of us, as, and this is for everybody, as we all struggle with that, that, uh, that personal love-hate relationship with ourselves, it, we fall into this thinking of, well, it's me. God loves me because it's me. I'm the most lovable person I know. In, in Greek mythology, there was a very handsome young man named Narcissus. And one day he looked into his reflection uh, in the river. And, and he saw his reflection and he saw how handsome he was. And he fell in love with his reflection. And he fell so in love with his reflection, he couldn't leave the river. And when he got thirsty, he reached in for a drink. But when he put his hand in the water, his reflection just. He refused to drink anymore so he could keep staring at himself. And eventually, he died there. He died of self-love. And we hear that and we're like, that's ridiculous. Yeah, and that's our problem. Because us too. Like this is everyone's basic problem. And you hear it from the world. Here's the problem is you go out into the world and you hear it from the world all the time, every day. Love yourself. God for it. In this sin of self-love, it is in the church. And it is a hardening who you're supposed to love. Other people and God himself. One manifestation of this self-love is thinking. It's thinking that you're actually good. As if, and you, wouldn't, you probably wouldn't say this out loud, out loud, but subconsciously it's as if you upheld the law and you're on God's side. Of course. Like, and, and, and it's this question, of, uh, and what about others? Uh, you know, there is this, let's just take that for an example. Let's take this, I'm going to put this in quotes, concerned objection 
It's a serious one, but just think about it at least. Like this concerned objection about what about those who have never heard about Jesus? What about others who have never heard about Jesus and the gospel? Is God really going to judge them? Okay, here's a sincere response. If that is actually your concern, are you actually doing anything about it? You know who doesn't ask that question as if it was an objection against the gospel? Missionaries. And I wanted to say this last week, but needed to wait till today. Um, this came up in a conversation with one of you uh, this week. I do not want you to be comfortable with God's wrath. Paul does not want you to get comfortable with God's wrath as if, as if like, well, oh well, it's what the unbeliever deserves. God's wrath is what all of us deserve apart from God's grace to you in Jesus Christ. Paul wants you to be so uncomfortable with God's wrath that it might drive you out to people who are perishing without the gospel and share it with them that they might believe. Another, another manifestation of this self-love that we have, uh, it's, it's not thinking that we necessarily uphold the law. It's this, thing, it's this manifestation of where we, we do reject the law. We reject the law so that others do not reject you. Like affirming, affirming someone in their idolatry, it sounds loving. It feels loving. It's not loving. It's actually to condemn them so that they won't condemn you because who you really love is you. We often say that we would die for the ones that we love. Okay? Would you be willing to offend someone you love out of love? This thing of would you be willing to get canceled for someone you love? Would you, would, would you actually die for someone you love? How about this? Would you die for a stranger? Would you die for an enemy? And again, I know, I, like, no one likes hearing this. No one likes to hear they are liable to God's wrath. But here's the question that Paul is pressing upon us for three chapters. Okay, but do you believe it? Or do you know better than the Apostle Paul? Do you know better than the Lord Jesus Christ? Uh, another pastor, Sinclair Ferguson, he said it this way. He said, today, even we in the church are tempted to say, you know, talking about God's wrath, it's just such an awful teaching. I couldn't have possibly done anything that would merit God's eternal wrath. But we don't ask the criminal in the dock to assess the nature of his crime because he's callous with respect to the nature of his crime you ask the judge about the nature of his crime. And, and here is the truth. The truth is, we really do not live in a relativistic world. Not truly. Not actually. And you really, really hear this today. Everybody wants justice. Everybody. Everybody wants God's justice. They just want it on those that they think are wrong. Everybody wants God's justice for others, just not for themselves. 
it's a narcissistic culture and world that we live in and now it is a therapeutic culture where the highest ideal is to feel good and that's because of self-love and that has infected the church like it's this thing of i come to church to feel good no you come to church to be exposed for what you are which is bad and as the one who is in need of grace and is the one who has it with Jesus in Jesus alone. In saying all of this, Paul knows, Paul knows where he's going. He knows that all of this begs the question which he's going to spend the rest of the letter answering, how can God be both just and gracious? Like in the gospel of grace, does God change his rules? Does he change his rules for like one group of people? No. If God changed the rules, then he would not be just. He would not be God. How, how is he both just and gracious, gracious? Justice is upheld by Jesus. By Jesus living the perfect life of obedience that we should live, and he did fulfill the law, the whole law, upholding all justice. And then, and then, after upholding all righteousness, Jesus pays the penalty by taking the wrath of God, not for his sin, but for your sin. That's what he does on the cross. Paul begins this letter, he begins this letter saying that he is sent by Jesus, who is the Son of God, in whom we have grace. But it's not that Jesus, the Son of God, is full of love and he's full of grace, and God the Father, well, he's just full of wrath. Righteous wrath. Loved ones, the Father is full of righteous wrath against us because of our sin. And he is full of love and grace because he's the one who loves us so much he sends his son to bear the wrath in our place. It is this question of where do you see God's grace most clearly and fully? You see it at the cross. And where do we see God's justice most clearly and fully? You see it at the cross. Again, uh, Sinclair Ferguson, I love this line. He says, God treats your life far more seriously than you treat your life. Is it like we walk around, maybe, maybe it's subconsciously, maybe it's consciously, we walk around thinking my life can't possibly mean that much. But to God, your life, every moment of, every moment of your life, it has eternal significance. Every single moment of your life has eternal significance to God. And it is only Jesus that can save us from death and judgment, and only Jesus can save us from that self-love. This is the gospel that first exposes the bad about you, and then by grace transforms you and restores your fellowship to God the Father as you are united to His Son and filled with His Spirit and enabled to say, you know what, in the midst of all of this terribleness and hate in the world, I feel surprisingly good being so loved by Jesus. So good, I want to love him and I want to love others with that same love. It is, it is that, that gospel hope and promise that Paul will continue to bring us back to we're not ashamed of the gospel. 
it is the power of God for salvation to everyone who believes, to the Jew first and also to the Greek, to all of us. We come to you in, in, in prayer, um, uh, just asking, asking and praying again. Christ that hope because there is no other hope, Lord, that you would confront us and expose our self-love. Uh, this, this sin that we, we constantly need to be in repentance of, to turn our eyes again to our Lord and Savior who did not withhold His love, but gave up everything out of love for us to come and take what we deserve. Father, we pray that that love and that grace that today and tomorrow and the next day would continue to change us as we turn from our self-love and we turn to the One who loved us. Lord, and that that would, that would little by little, of our, I can't feel it, that it would change us more and more into the image of our risen Lord and Savior, that it would enable us to love you back and to love others, our family, our friends, strangers, even our enemies. We, knowing that we, just as much as anybody, we need the gospel. And we pray this in Christ's name. Amen.